When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to an Ono Media podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's head to Pennsylvania this morning for this wild ride that includes a magistrate judge accused of two separate shootings. She's also accused of interfering with a criminal case involving her son. And then also she allowed staff to take too many vacation days while she served on the bench. So let's do this. In 2014, Sonia McKnight and Enoch McKnight married, and they made their home in Pennsylvania. Now, this was a time of professional growth for Sonia. One year into the marriage, Sonia ran against and defeated a sitting judge to win the primary election for her district. She then went on to win the general election and take her seat on the bench. And for Enoch, maybe this was a time of recovery. He had a history with the law in North Carolina that included three larceny convictions. He then was convicted of robbery two different times, once in 1999 and another in 2004. Now, he was paroled in 2014 and was serving a form of probation when the two married. But that union, it didn't last long. By 2016, the two had separated and filed for divorce. And have you guys ever noticed that people involved in the legal system, like judges or lawyers, they have some of the longest lasting divorce proceedings or legal matters, and it must be because they know too much and what's available for them in the legal system. I don't know, but they seem to stretch out when you're involved in the process. And this divorce proceeding, well, it's no different. It's dragging out. It's dragging out over three years. And on May 10th of 2019... Sonia invited Enoch to her house. She said she needed some help moving furniture. Now, Enoch's sister told PenLive that after Enoch had moved one armchair to the neighbor's home, he returned and grabbed another chair to transfer. That's when Enoch's sister said a fight broke out. And after Sonia accused Enoch of being a cheater, she shot him in the hand and the groin. Now, a neighbor called 911 and Enoch was treated at a hospital and For all you men that are listening, who are really concerned about the growing injury, Enoch is okay. 
But when police interviewed Sonia after the shooting, and then they interviewed Enoch following his surgery, the accounts of what happened varied drastically. Sonia claimed it was self-defense when she shot Enoch. And of course, Enoch said Sonia was acting out of rage. And maybe Sonia had a history with Enoch that could back up her story of self-defense. She had previously, while the divorce was dragging along, filed for a protective order. But she had then altered the order to allow for peaceful contact with each other. So what does that exactly mean? Well, here's how it goes. If Enoch visits the home to move furniture and he doesn't make any aggressive actions towards Sonia, then he isn't in violation of the new order. But if he visits the home to move furniture and he behaves overtly aggressively, then he breaks the boundaries of the existing protection order. So the initial question is, how come there is a protective order? Well, this is how it goes. At one point, Sonia had reported that she was trying to go to the grocery store in Enoch's car. Okay, remember, they're separated, but they're together on this day, and she says she's going to the grocery store in his car. Sonia told police that when she tried to pull away in the car, that Enoch opened the door and violently pried her hands from the steering wheel. This resulted in Sonia crashing Enoch's car into a fire hydrant. She also reportedly suffered injuries to her hands and arms. But as in the shooting story, Enoch's telling varies from Sonia's. His sister said that the visit to the grocery store didn't actually happen. Instead, Enoch was headed to North Carolina for the weekend, and Sonia didn't want him to go on that trip. So in this version of the story, Sonia got in the car to stop Enoch from leaving. And that's when Enoch tried to remove Sonia from the car. Well, charges of simple assault and recklessly endangering another person were filed against Enoch, but it wasn't handled in their county because Sonia working in the court system in that area could possibly cause a conflict of interest. So it was moved. Well, after those charges, the initial protective order was filed. And then at one point, Sonia said Enoch violated that order by calling her 23 times in a limited time frame. But despite By reporting that violation, the two just seemed destined to cause mischief with each other because just one month after the car incident, Sonia filed for the protective order to be softened to the new language of, hey, you two can be together, just don't do anything aggressive. But then three months after that, Sonia was supposed to be driving to Enoch's house to pick up some money. She claimed she couldn't find his new house in Newville, Pennsylvania, so she just turned around and went home. But later, she reported that Enoch had made threatening phone calls that evening to Sonia because she hadn't shown up at his house and he was frustrated. So Enoch was arrested again. Then, in what some may call an act of retribution or others may say he was just trying to move on with the divorce, either way, Enoch filed a petition for equitable distribution of property and also economic relief since the divorce was dragging on for years. So what does Sonia do? Well, she files to have the protective order returned to a no contact status. But then just two weeks after doing that, she files for the order to be reduced back down to the, hey, you two can be together again, just don't do anything aggressive stage. And that catches us all up to the shooting that happened when Enoch was moving the armchairs to the neighbor's house. Everything I described to you, all of this is in just a nine-month period. Now, following the shooting, Sonia was put on administrative leave for about a month. 
and then Enoch was out of work for about a month recovering. But in June, Sonia returned to the bench and Enoch returned to work. And by August of that year, Sonia was cleared by the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. In a statement, the AG's office said, we can confirm the investigation is closed and no charges have been filed. The Office of Attorney General completed a careful review of the evidence in this case, including, but not limited to, interviewing all witnesses, analyzing phone data and records, reviewing crime scene evidence, as well as surveillance and reenactment videos. We found that Ms. McKnight acted in self-defense, which is why our office did not file charges. All right, at this point, Sonia and Enik, they move on. They finish the divorce and they cut ties. But Sonia's entanglement with the law, above and beyond her working as a judge, well, it just keeps going. A year and a half after she was cleared of the shooting of her estranged husband, Sonia's 31-year-old son, Kevin, was stopped by a Harrisburg police officer for some sort of traffic violation. That's not really the important part. It's what the officer discovered when he was running Kevin's information that's important. Kevin had an active warrant, which meant... Kevin was pulled from the car, and in the search of his car, the officer found crack cocaine, a scale for weighing, and a stack of cash. Now, while the officer was running the initial identification on Kevin, Kevin grabbed his cell phone and called his mother, Sonia, and Sonia made her way to the scene of the traffic stop. When she arrived there and took note of the precarious situation her son was facing, she made a call to the commissioner of Harrisburg Police Department, on his personal cell phone, not his police department-issued cell phone. Allegedly, Sonia told the commissioner that the traffic stop was illegal. Now, the officers, they're telling a different story. They say the stop was legal and that Sonia was being demanding and she was highly agitated. They say she was furious her son had been placed in handcuffs and demanded that the officer stop searching through her son's pockets. Now, due to the interference by Sonia, the officers didn't complete the search of Kevin. And when he was booked to the county jail, Kevin still had possession of a razor blade. Now, nothing bad happened with that blade except that they discovered it. But the officers used that information to explain how Sonia had interfered. Sonia was then charged with tampering with evidence and obstruction of administration of law. She eventually was acquitted of those charges, but she did suffer a suspension from the bench and was off work for 200 days without pay. But there's more with Sonia. Two years after the traffic stop fiasco with her son, Sonia was slapped with a series of charges by the Judicial Conduct Board. Okay, this all happened in 2023. Sonia was being accused of telling four members of her staff that they could take four extra vacation days without utilizing their earned leave. Basically, she gifted them four days of paid time off while they were not working. The judicial board said that those 16 days of paid time for no work constituted theft of government funds. Now, the board had also handled a complaint that had been filed against Sonia by a woman who said that Sonia owed her $2,073 for an unpaid loan. Allegedly, this woman said she had filed a formal complaint that was delivered to Sonia's office. But Sonia allegedly told her office staff to ignore that legal complaint. So the woman then went above her head and filed that complaint with the judicial board. And if that's not enough complaints, (laughs) there's another one. Apparently, Sonia had a private Facebook page called Sonia Marie. On that page, 
while dressed in her robes from the bench, Sonia has pictures of Exit Red or Red Exit. I actually found both names in my internet sleuthing. Okay, this red product is used to mask specific body odors so that intimacy between partners can be more enjoyable. She then urged people to purchase the red product, and the complaint accused her of abusing the prestige of her office by soliciting sales of a product for financial gain on a social media account that clearly identified her as a magistrate district judge. All right, Sonia has a colorful past, but last week... It got shadier when the 57-year-old was charged with attempted murder and aggravated assault. Susquehanna Township Police are alleging that Sonia shot her estranged boyfriend in the head while he was sleeping. Okay, she shot her estranged husband in the groin. Now she's shooting her estranged or allegedly shooting her estranged boyfriend in the head. Okay, here's how it all went down. Sonia had visited her estranged boyfriend at his home on February 9th. Her former boyfriend, 54-year-old Michael McCoy, had allegedly attempted to get Sonia to leave his home multiple times. Her items were still at the house, and it seems Sonia was still trying to cohabitate despite them breaking up after a year-long relationship. Apparently, Michael had asked for the key to his place back, but Sonia had a spare key. And on the 9th of February, when Michael came home, Sonia was in her pajamas on his couch. He asked her to leave, and she refused. He then told her that he was going to enlist his mother to help remove her stuff from his home starting tomorrow. Well, after that disagreement, Michael said he went to bed. But in the early morning hours of the 10th, he awoke to tremendous pain in his right eye that was radiating throughout his head. He also couldn't see. And then he says he began to scream. According to Mike, Sonia responded to his screaming by saying, Mike, what did you do to yourself? After calling 911 and while being interviewed at the hospital, police say Mike assured them that he did not shoot himself. But when Sonia was interviewed by police, they say she had gunshot residue on her hands and also that the wound to Mike's forehead was inflicted from a distance of about a foot from head to gun which is not typical for a self-inflicted wound. After her arrest, Sonia was incarcerated in the Dauphin County Prison with a bail set at $300,000. At the time of the shooting, she was still serving her suspension for her employment misdeeds. Now, Sonia's attorney, Corey Leshner, said in a statement on Monday that his client was innocent of all the charges and that she did not shoot Mike McCoy. He also said he intends to vigorously defend Sonia in this matter and that she looks forward to the entire story being told. This one is clearly not over. I'll watch and keep you updated. And when I know, I'll let you know. And let's quickly cover the disappearance and discovery of an adorable Texas girl who went missing on her way to school last week. 11-year-old Audrey Cunningham left her home Thursday morning wearing her bright red Hello Kitty backpack and she began walking to catch the school bus, but she never made it to the bus or to school. Authorities began searching frantically in the small East Texas town of Livingston, which is about 70 miles northeast of Houston. On that Thursday morning, Audrey walked to the school bus stop at 7 a.m. accompanied by her father's friend, Don Stephen McDougall. Now, the 42-year-old McDougal lives in a trailer on the family's property, and he'd been known to walk the girl to the bus stop on other mornings. 
When Audrey didn't return home after school, her family reported her missing. Authorities discovered that she hadn't ridden the bus that day and that she also had never made it to the school. A multi-agency search ensued that included the Texas Rangers, the Texas Department of Public Safety, the Livingston Police Department, the Texas State Guard, and even several local fire departments and the county sheriff. Authorities were particularly concerned that Livingston is close to Lake Livingston, which is one of the state's largest reservoirs. The next day, as those agencies were fanning out over the area, searchers discovered the Hello Kitty backpack near Lake Livingston Dam. The weekend was full of continued searching, and then on Monday, authorities announced that they had a person of interest in the case. McDougal, okay, that's the man who lived on the property and who was apparently walking her to the school bus. Well, he was arrested for an unrelated assault charge, and he was being held in jail. Now, that arrest allowed law enforcement much needed time to continue searching for Audrey and also for other clues and evidence while McDougal is locked up. That makes it so he's unable to leave or potentially alter the situation. Authorities said they were concerned because McDougal was the last to see Audrey and also that he displayed some concerning behavior while participating in the searches for Audrey. Sheriff Lyons from Polk County said that some of the witnesses that have been interviewed said that McDougal was knocking on doors in the area asking anyone if they had seen the young girl. The sheriff said that his behavior was telegraphing to him that McDougal is trying to give the appearance that he's not at fault in Audrey's disappearance and that he's actually part of the group that is deeply concerned in finding the young girl. Now, the sheriff also said that they believe McDougal's dark blue, older model Suburban could have been used in the disappearance of Audrey. And initial reporting is indicating that McDougal had a lot of contact with the 11-year-old. He lives on the property. He would take her to school if she missed the bus. And the living situation's not quite typical. Audrey's father had primary custody. And the people living on the property included her father, McDougal, and her father's parents. And sometimes it's awesome to have that many adults helping in the care of a young child, but sometimes it means you can always believe someone else is watching the child. Now, I want to be careful not to assign guilt immediately to McDougal, but this guy's history is bad news. McDougal had pleaded no contest to two felony counts of enticing a child, and those charges stemmed from a 2007 incident in Barzoria County. Okay, that's just south of Houston. And also, in 2003, McDougal received a three-year sentence for felony assault of a public servant. And then there's more. In 2010, McDougal was handed a four-year sentence for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. And then, just a year and a half ago, he was released from prison after serving a two-year sentence for unauthorized use of a vehicle. Okay, one thing is clear. This man is okay with breaking the law and including violence in those criminal acts. Now, Audrey's mother, Cassie Matthews, told CNN on Tuesday morning that her heart always broke for other parents who had missing children when she would hear about them on the news. She said that this is the stuff you see on TV, and you just try to imagine how the family's doing. Now she's the one people are watching on TV. She said there are no words for the pain she feels. She said it's been a roller coaster because some points you're broken, and then at some points you're mad, and then you're just empty. Well, I'm sure Cassie's heartache deepened on Tuesday evening when Sheriff Lyons held a news conference and told the public that Audrey had been found deceased. Audrey was found in the Trinity River along US 59. 
Sheriff Lyons clarified that cell phone data was used to help identify places to look for little Audrey and that following those technology leads, the local river authority slowed down the outflow of the reservoir to help search teams comb the waters. Audrey was found just 10 miles from her home. An autopsy is being done to determine the cause of death. Now, the discovery of Audrey led to McDougal being charged with capital murder on Tuesday evening. The death penalty is legal in Texas, but the district attorney has yet to say if she will be seeking that punishment. You guys, I'm watching this case. I'm sure there's going to be more information. It's very fresh. It will be coming available. When I know, I'll let you know. Well, it was sentencing day on Tuesday for Ruby Frankie and Jody Hildebrand. You guys, I think I've covered this case five times now. So this is actually going to be the sixth. You can find those other more extensive episodes in September and December of last year. In September, it's the 4th, the 11th, and the 14th. And then in December, when the plea deal arrangements started happening, those episodes happened on the 4th and the 21st. So if you're interested in going back and listening for more extensive details, that's where you can find them. But here's a very, very quick summary. Ruby, along with her husband, Kevin, made their millions giving parenting advice via their now defunct YouTube channel, Eight Passengers. See, they had six kids and then there's two parents. That makes a total of eight, which is where the name comes from. As the channel grew, her parenting style was scrutinized for being aggressive or even neglectful and sometimes harmful to the six children. After the intense scrutiny over making her son sleep on the floor without a bed for multiple months, and also for sending that same son away to a behavioral slash survival camp to improve his actions, Ruby stepped away from the YouTube channel and YouTube shut it down. But she wasn't done. She began working with Jody Hildebrand, who has her own checkered past that included a failed marriage and her two children becoming estranged from the family. Also, some difficulties with previous patients. She was sued by one patient. He's still really vocal about it. You can find out more information about that online. Just know Jody has a troubled past as well. Well, Jody went on and created a counseling business called Connections. And she began helping Ruby with her failing marriage. That help was so intrusive that Jody actually moved into Ruby's Utah home and wouldn't allow either Ruby or Kevin to speak to each other unless they used Jody as a go-between. Okay, I don't need to tell you guys that this counseling technique did not save this marriage. Kevin moved out and he left Ruby with the four youngest kids. Then Jody and Ruby paired up to create the Connections YouTube channel and the bad advice and counseling techniques just kept flowing. In the summer of 2023, Ruby spent several weeks living in Jody's sprawling Southern Utah home. And while there, her two youngest children, Russell and Eve, they kind of hung out with them. Well, during those summer months, the abuse of the children escalated to the point of tying up Russell for his bad behavior. She was starving both of the children, forcing them to perform manual labor outside in the hot and unforgiving Southern Utah sun. Ruby and Jody wouldn't even let the two young children wear shoes on the hot desert sand. The abuse was discovered when Russell escaped out of a bedroom window and went to the nearest house looking for food. The neighbor called 911 and explained the tragic appearance of the emaciated 12-year-old. Later that day, Eve was rescued from the home 
and Jody and Ruby were arrested and charged with six counts of child abuse, each of them receiving six counts. Now, two months ago, they both worked out a plea deal where they would plead guilty to four of the charges, and then two of the charges would be dropped. They also would not be allowed to appeal their sentencing. During that plea, the horrific details of the abuse were exposed. And over the last few months, Kevin has filed for divorce. Ruby's oldest daughter has spoken out against her mother, and the extended family has cut ties with Ruby and Kevin. Okay, it does appear that Kevin is in the process of mending those severed ties, but it's going to be a long road. And here's the update. On Tuesday, 5th District Judge John Walton issued 1 to 15 years in prison for each four counts of child abuse. So, Ruby and Jody can each spend 4 to 60 years in prison for the abuse that they inflicted on those two children. The judge said the two women should serve the sentences consecutively, so they'll be in prison for four years, at least as it stands for now. We'll just have to see what good behavior and everything else plays out. Now, Ruby told the court that over the past four years, she followed counseling that led her to a dark place. She claimed that her paranoia led her to commit criminal acts. She said she was taking full accountability for her actions and that it was her preference to serve a prison sentence. She also thanked the police and called them angels for saving her children from the circumstances. She then claimed that the moment the police handcuffed her, that she gained her freedom. She then addressed her destroyed marriage and said that Kevin was the love of her life. She apologized to him, saying she regrets leaving him to finish what they started together. Jody also read a statement during the sentencing that highlighted that she sincerely loved Ruby's children and that she desires for them to heal physically and emotionally. She said one reason she chose not to go to trial was because she did not want those children to relive the experiences that were so detrimental to them. She also said she was willing to submit to what the state deemed an appropriate amount of time to serve in prison. Now, the judge told Jody that what happened to the children as well as Jody's philosophy in dealing with them, was frankly detached from reality and held no standard of decency or even common sense. Well, this ties up this portion of the horrendous story, but that doesn't mean the children are healed or more fallout from the damage will be inflicted on them. Let's hope those children are surrounded in love for the rest of their lives. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime Thank you guys so much. I love bringing you these crime updates. I love that we've created this little community. Please tell a friend if you like what you're hearing. Or even better, you can give a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Um, I know I say this all the time, but I love this community that we're creating. I love that this podcast is growing. Thank you so much. You can join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.